Welcome to Thriving in Business and Life. I'm Christopher Harding. And I'm Will Wilkinson. Uh, welcome back to the show. And Christopher, you, welcome back to Ashland. Yeah, I've been uh, out on the road uh, for what seems like a really long time. <laughs> it's only been probably three or four weeks, but it seems longer than that. Well, given what you were doing, trainings here and everywhere, it was a long time. Yeah, yeah. It, it, uh, it kind of actually also lends itself to our topic today you know more recently in past programs we've talked about the importance of vision first and mm -hmm. uh, really also taking a look at how do you create results now how do you allow the the sense of a future vision to really motivate us and now we're gonna also take a swing kind of back to the other direction and say well what about what's going on right now how does vision combine with an accurate assessment to really guide us in a, you could say, pragmatic, really grounded, sensible way. Yeah, the simple metaphor we use is there are two sides of one coin, vision on the one side, assessment on the other. Yeah, so if how do you, how do you go about doing assessment, you know, without killing the enthusiasm of the vision and, and, I, and I'll use a classic example I think we've all experienced it's in a brainstorming session which is all about possibilities and vision and somebody's come up with some great ideas and somebody else goes oh that'll never work yeah and here's why yeah so how do you keep assessment from being a total vision killer well I think Edward de Bono addressed that many years ago with his six thinking hats uh, system where you had different colored hats for different functions. <laughs> you put on, I forget the colors now, but let's say the blue hat was for brainstorming. Everybody put on the blue hat. All you were doing was brainstorming. And then you could put on the black hat. All you could do was negativity, you know, taking a kind of what's the worst case scenario here kind of point of view. So I think that's part of it is having an agreement about what is, what's relevant. I know my wife and I go through this at times because you could almost say that I represent vision and she represents assessment. So when I come up with a vision, she is going to immediately start assessing the practicality of what we're doing. So over the years, we've had to create some ground rules because I've sometimes got upset and said, look, you're, you're raining on my parade. Couldn't we enjoy this vision just for another moment or two? Or conversely, she might say, you're being impractical. We need to face facts. <laughs> so it's like the, the, the timing of how to assess without trampling on the vision. Yeah, it's timing, basically. Yeah, yeah so, so part of that is timing. I think, I think uh, if, if we look at it, you've used the analogy of a rubber band mm. in the past. Well, yeah, I borrowed that from uh, Robert Fritz from his uh, book in the 80s, The Path of Least Resistance. He came up with this model, structural tension, he calls it. You put an elastic band between your forefinger and your thumb. One digit represents a vision, the other is the way things are. Now you stretch that elastic band, that tension is impossible to sustain forever. So one finger is going to move. And what it means in the metaphor is that either your, your, the way things are is going to move in the direction of your vision, or your vision is going to collapse back and things are going to stay the same. So his point, which we emphasize in the book as well, is where are where's your focus? Is your focus in the vision or in the way things are? You need to consider both, but which one is the strongest focus? I think the way you said it in the book was we need to live in the power of the vision and visit reality yeah, frequently. Exactly. 
Yes, yeah. but but not allow a circumstance to just totally thwart where we were enthused about going. Well, there's an odd thing that happens, and it, this is like another moment when we reference the Matrix, where Morpheus tells <laughs> Neo, you have to experience this for yourself. No one can tell you what it is. Right. But what I'm referring to is this anomaly that I've discovered. When we get into the habit of not allowing our visionary genes to be smothered by looking at the facts, actually the facts expand the vision. It's a peculiarity looking at the way things are from a visionary standpoint, or, or you could say context, the way things are begins to look very, very different. And you start to see things that kind of highlight themselves that can contribute to the fulfillment of the vision, which is the opposite of a buzzkill. Right. So part of part of doing an accurate assessment, um, a lot of times what we say when we're doing focus groups with teams or organizations is a real simple set of questions. What's working mm -hmm. and what's not? Mm -hmm. And if we're looking at what's working and what's not in the context of the vision we've set for ourselves, now the whole conversation is revolving around what what's working that could get us to that vision even more quickly or more effectively, what's not working that we need to deal with in order for that vision to be uh, brought about. I, I just went through one of the sessions I was doing while I was gone was with an organization who really created a vision of what it would be like for their team and their department to thrive. Mm -hmm. And then we looked at, well, what's currently working that's, that's contributing to that, what's not? And that assessment has really allowed them to now form some teams that they're going to be utilizing to both continue to accent the things that are working, but also solve some of the things that are not. So that assessment is, is really become a positive enabler that's going to allow them to fulfill in a much better fashion this vision they have of what's going to be like for them to thrive together. Well, I just want to highlight the secret sauce in this particular recipe because it was even evident in your voice, the way you presented what you've been doing with this, uh, this organization. You start with what's working. Right, right. And it, it was interesting the way you said it. You know, we focus on what's working. We, we see how that can improve what's not working. Then we look at not, what's not working. We analyze. You know, the, obviously the priority is to leverage what's succeeding to try and improve what's not working. Right, and, and I learned uh, years ago, there was a process called appreciative inquiry, which I know you're familiar with as well, and, and it, to oversimplify that process, the idea was to, to look at what's the state you want things to be in, you know, what's the vision that you have, and then work from there. And so even by starting out by saying, what would it look like? What would it feel like? What would we do and not do in order to have a thriving culture together? That's the vision part, yes. right? And then when we moved to the assessment part, you're right, we went with what's working and that actually continued to feed the vision. It created more hope and possibility so that when we started looking at what's not working, we've already got enough momentum to where that's not gonna drag down things, even though some of those situations were, are gonna require some significant effort. Well, you've just identified, I think, the key element in success or failure with assessments, and that is 
what is the assessment relative to? I'm <laughs> yeah, reading a book yeah. called uh, Willful Blindness right now. Oh, wow. Fascinating book uh, documenting one account after another through history of people missing the obvious, even when they were doing assessments. And the reason they were was because the assessments were relative to the status quo, not relative to a vision. And when an assessment is done relative to the status quo, the do's and don'ts, the pluses and the minuses are all relative to are we continuing in the proud tradition of what worked before? It may have nothing to do with what the future is calling for. That's why the vision is so vital before undertaking the assessment. Right. Yeah, that's a that's a great uh, distinction. I hadn't thought about it that way, that uh, if if what we're doing an assessment of is preserving the status quo, um, then there's almost going to be a certain defensiveness about making sure that we keep things the way they are and any new fresh idea actually needs to be killed in order to preserve the status quo. Well, it sets a debate in motion. You now have a conflict between the way things are and the way maybe some of the team members are sensing they could go for an improvement. Why not just start with the vision and yeah. then everybody's on the same page? Well, and it, it does create an entirely different state of mind and, and being. I mean, we've talked a lot about brain states and having the vision first and what's working definitely creates an elevated, uh, you could say, brain state where we're thinking more from a whole brain perspective. And that way, when we move to that assessment of what's not working, we're, we're not coming from a place of criticism or fear. We're coming from a place of how can we analyze this and determine this in order to make it work. Well, this is reminding me of uh, our conversation about uh, values. I believe it's in Module 3 of our program. And the difference between values that are kind of dutiful aspirations. Right. You know, I should be doing this. We should have this or that versus what lights us up. Yeah. And so this is kind of the same thing. An assessment can be relative to the way things are, the way they've worked, what we should be doing. A vision is, hey, what lights us up? What are we excited about achieving? Yeah. What are we passionate about yeah. and how is that yeah. going to inspire us to, to, to continue? Well, it's, it's you know kind of curious when you think about it because um, assessments in a way need to be ongoing. Mm -hmm. I, I think we utilize the analogy somewhere in, in either the book or the course we created that the assessment in a way is kind of like the GPS. Mm -hmm. It's double checking to make sure that where we're heading is actually where we intended to go, yeah. that the actions we're taking are actually leading us to the destination we set out to, to achieve. Well, you know, Chris, that makes a wonderful point. If we think of a GPS driving along, we're heading somewhere, we don't plug in the coordinates once right. and then forget about it. We're hearing the voice, usually, the, whoever that woman is, <laughs> an AI guide, directing us towards our destination. If we were to plug in the coordinates, get the destination, hear it once, and then shut it off, we'd be right. lost right. because there's going to be, you know, 10 to 100 turns on the way to getting to fulfilling our vision, reaching our destination. So you're right. Assessment is not something we do at the beginning and then forget about. It's an ongoing thing. You know, it's it's interesting that there was a, a characteristic that they had built into the uh, several of the early map programs where if you missed a turn or didn't do it quite right, 
the voice would almost get impatient do you know <laughs> recalculating I recalculating that, yeah. right? and you're thinking actually she's saying you're an idiot <laughs> <laughs> and they've kind of they've actually in most programs now removed that it just uh, starts giving you new directions yeah. right yeah. and so I mean you think about that as, as a leader um, if we were to provide direction and, and correction where needed in the same way that that, that voice now does, mm-hmm. it'd be really interesting. It, it doesn't get upset anymore. Right. It just kind of uh, says, okay, here's what you need to do to get back on course. Right, because the facts are you can set a, a course towards your destination and things show up. There's a detour. There's a traffic jam, and some of the more sophisticated systems now can anticipate that, and they can direct you around traffic jams. Right, right. I think that's brilliant. So, you know, back to the office, you have your plan, you have your vision, you've made your assessment, you're on your way. Well, a traffic jam shows up. A supplier doesn't come through. Somebody come, reports in sick. Uh, a phone call gets missed. Whatever happens, well, what's the point here? Is the point to find the redirect to continue towards the destination or to punish someone. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) Who screwed up? Well, you want to include that in the assessment to make sure that whatever happened is understood so it'd be accounted for and anticipated for another round. But the point is to get to your destination. Well, you know, as as we're talking about that, it's dawning on me also that in order to really do assessment effectively, um, you really have to understand how to how to do inclusion effectively. And that's a a later chapter and topic. But it does directly relate here, because if you think about how Google, who bought the map program Waze, um, incorporated what Waze had done, and Waze was getting feedback from all of the drivers along the way. That's how they were getting that real-time yeah. um, reconnaissance, if you will. And it's a great, a great example. If we're working and being inclusive enough with who we're involving in a project and a vision and a goal, and everybody is is feels that their voice can be heard and they contribute. We'll learn and get, gather an ongoing assessment much more effectively than if it's just, you know, us looking from our ivory tower or whatever remote location we are where we don't see the whole picture. Or if we're just maintaining the status quo. Right. If that's right. the reference. You know, I'm remembering an episode from one of my favorite TV shows, Longmire. It's a Western. <laughs> yes. And a really key moment where uh, one of his deputies had screwed up big time. And he came in filled with remorse and took off his badge, put it on the desk, sheriff's desk, and offered his resignation. And Longmire, anyone who's seen the show will remember, he's a pretty wise guy. He said, you know, I'm not going to accept your resignation. I hired you for two reasons. One was, I felt there was potential in there for you to become an excellent deputy. And the second one, I can't remember. (laughs) And I've recalled that often because, you know, the deputy picked up his badge resumed his duties and really did blossom into an effective deputy. The point I'm making was that the sheriff's assessment was that this guy had what it took and he made an adjustment when something went way off the rails and what did he do? He included his deputy with even more confidence in him and the guy lived up to that expectation. That's cool. I I was uh, been working with several different uh, clients who have been going through the process of of getting disc assessments, personality 
profiles for themselves. And that assessment, when used effectively, has allowed them to also understand how do I best work with this person mm-hmm. or that person? Mm-hmm. How can I help them to best work with me? So it, again, if that is focused around how can we all succeed together, then that DISC assessment can be really used effectively. If we're not careful, it could also become a tool that says, well, this person's a D, and so they're going to be difficult for me. In other words, we start stereotyping and actually let that assessment get infected with the virus of bias, yeah. right? Yeah. And so it, it, that, that piece of assessment coupled with vision and, the, and with the goal in mind seems to be something that as leaders we really need to make sure that we're setting that context when we're making assessments in an ongoing fashion. You're reminding me of a highlight in the coaching manual. I'm just working on it right now, so it's, uh, it's in my mind. There's a simple little statement in the middle of one of the pages. It's about we, not me. Right, and right. I think that's what we're talking about here. It's a team event. Right, and if you think about it's about we, not me. It's about the destination not being stuck. You know, I mean, those two things going hand in hand. How can we advance ourselves to this destination we all felt lit us up? Well, and another thing I'd like to bring out and get into this a little bit, it's about being proactive rather than reactive. And often assessment in a person's mind is synonymous with uh, debriefing. Right. Analyzing after the fact what went wrong. Yeah. We're, we're including the preemptive assessment as well, really emphasizing that before things go off the rails and we need to debrief about what went wrong to do a very clear assessment about what way things could go with the available resources so that we can anticipate possible problems ahead of time. Yeah, that's a great point, that it's pre-assessment, it's current assessment, and it's post-assessment at every step along the way. You know, uh, I just got through uh, posting a blog that we wrote about uh, talent selection, and it was kind of around the topic of, of empowerment and so on. But we talk about assessment there, too. How do I pre-assess somebody's capability in order to make sure that what I'm getting ready to ask them to do, they're really capable of doing? Or that if they're lacking in some capability, I know that well enough to provide them with the, the backup, the support, the mentorship, whatever it is, that's going to allow them to succeed as opposed to giving somebody an assignment that's in essence setting them up to fail. And so that assessment up front and as they move forward, if I've got the vision of them, you're going back to Sheriff Longmire, if I've got the vision of them being excellent and succeeding, that's my vision and I'm assessing along the way, how are they doing and how am I doing in supporting their success? Well, another anomaly is that uh, people find that when they do that kind of a pre-assessment, it also activates their intuition. It's as if our brains are saying, okay, we really need to cross the T's, dot the I's here, be really careful, know what we're getting into. Oh, okay, we've done that. Well, now let's get into our intuition. Because sometimes people think, oh, I don't need any of that stuff. I'm just going to go with my gut. I like this guy. He'll do a great job. Sometimes it can work. Other times it's a shortcut where it can be dangerous to just rely on the gut feeling without doing the kind of thing you were just describing. Right, because what happens in those cases, if anybody's read Malcolm Gladwell's book, Blink, 
uh, it's real easy for us to mistake intuition for bias. Right. Or bias for intuition. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and in the case we're talking about here, uh, if, if the halo effect is at play, and I really like this person because I relate to them, and so I'm blinded to right. some of the... the Blind, blinded by their light. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Become brain blind to the yeah. things that could be detractors. And so being willing to take an accurate assessment, and in the case of talent, that's why people are using talent uh, panels now much more regularly, because maybe I have the halo effect going and all I can see is what's great about them and somebody else is able to go, well, hang on a second. Let's make sure we don't set this person up to fail because here are some other things that, that we know about them or that I've noticed about them. So that, that again, inclusion coming back to, to assessment and being aware of how bias can impact our assessment if we're not careful as well. Well, another part of bias that can un unknowingly influence things in not a good way is the investment we have unconsciously in certain preferences. When we don't <laughs> right. do an assessment, we're, we're likely not even aware that we're invested in, for instance, really having a good time together. Right. Now, that's important. We like to enjoy working together. But is that a priority? You yeah. know, so if we don't do the assessment, get very detailed about what we want, what we need, where we're going, all these investments underneath the surface can influence our decision making. Well, you know, it's it's interesting. There was a process we used to do. Uh, we used to get called in for a lot of uh, problem solving and doing brainstorming sessions with people. And uh, my wife Leela had this process called a brain splurge, and and it was <laughs> it was really fun. But one of the first things she did was had everybody write down on a piece of paper what was their personal agenda and what was the agenda that they maybe didn't even realize they had until they started thinking about it. Mm, brilliant. And so that all got uh, up and then people would actually say what their agenda, both obvious and hidden, was. And the agreement was, well, let's set those aside consciously now so that we can solve this problem together. And can we have an agreement that if you see me starting to pull on my agenda in a way that's detracting from the real aim we have, that you know you can call me on it. And it, it just, it, I don't think I ever sat in one of those sessions where somebody pulled on their agenda because it was out in the open and they were aware of it and they didn't want to be called on it. And so everybody focused on the solution, on the goal together. And it was a remarkable what could happen as a result. That's such a simple but such a brilliant idea. In a way, you think about it, it, it was doing a pre-assessment yeah. of people's agenda, yeah. recognizing that without that, the, the aim they had of solving a problem was going to be thwarted to some extent. Well, I can recall innumerable examples in this book I mentioned, Willful Blindness, where had an assessment been done early, it would have exposed all kinds of agendas. In one case, she tells the story of a young doctor in England who began to study why so many young children aged two to four were dying of leukemia. Mm. And she very quickly made the connection with x-rays that were being administered to pregnant uh, women. Oh, wow. A very small dose of radiation given once turned out to be causally linked to the premature death by cancer of these children. Now, she was a very careful researcher. She got her colleagues involved. They made sure the studies were accurate, presented the information. 
and were met with total skepticism, denial, violent objections, and they continued administering x-rays in the face of solid evidence that they were killing children for another 25 years. Wow. Wow. Well, I mean... 25 years yeah. where their agenda, which was apparently to create more health, was actually killing children. And that fact would have been revealed if they had done the kind of assessment we're talking about. Well, it's it's interesting, too. I mean, so you're talking about the status quo, right? right? And how uh, a preference or a bias for the status quo can blind us, really. Um, and, and, I mean, as you say that, I mean, you just think of the many stories... Uh, you know the Love Canal up in the you know the northeastern part of the United States that was toxified by uh, a particular company, and the refusal to acknowledge the uh, the mounting evidence because the thought of changing was so uh, you know overwhelming to them that they were in denial. And yeah. so, uh, I mean, it sounds like uh, as we're thinking through this that assessment in a way is a prophylactic for denial (laughs) that's brilliant (laughs) we got to publish that one (laughs) i mean because i i I, it's it's so easy to slip into denial i mean as soon as something's uncomfortable and we don't want to deal with it or reflects on us in some way that we think is negative um it's just you know, instantly, how can I how can I diminish the evidence so that it appears to be uh, invalid? Well, I'm remembering the Stockdale paradox. I can't recall if we put this in our book or our course. I think it is. Yeah, uh, named after Jim Stockdale, who was a prisoner of war and survived, and was interviewed by Jim Collins, who wrote the book Good to Great and also Built to Last. The stories in one of those books, and Collins asked him, "Well, why?" Why did you survive where some of your men died in camp? And he said, oh, oh, that's easy to answer. The ones who died were all the optimists. Oh, interesting. And, and yeah, that's what he said. Optimists? What do you mean? He said, well, they were the ones who said, uh, I know I'll be out by Christmas. Oh, okay. And then Christmas would come and they, they were still in prison. And they'd say, well, well, we'll be out by Easter. I, I know it. Easter would come and they, they were still in prison. And Jim said that they died of broken hearts. The ones that got out, including himself, were the ones who said, you know, I might die in this prison. I might never hold my daughter again. But I'm never giving up on the dream of returning home to my family. So what they call the Stockdale Paradox is this. Face the brutal facts of the situation, but never give up hope in the end of the story. Yeah, yeah, well, that's a perfect uh, analogy of, of uh, vision and assessment, isn't right. it? And and we talked about in in the episode we did a few weeks back on on vision first that it's important to not overly detail the vision of exactly how it's going to happen and when it's going to happen and so on because it creates that false optimism, you could say, yes. yeah. as opposed to the feeling, which it sounds like what what the Stockdale uh, paradox yeah. is saying, right. the feeling of I believe that 
that it's still possible for me to get out of here and I'm not going to lose hope, but I realize I might not. And if you go to the next step of man's search for meaning, Viktor Frankl said, therefore, since I'm here, how can I have the best impact on the most amount of people? Yeah. Well, and it harkens to our rework of that famous statement, the end justifies the means, into the means determine the end. Right. Because when our vision is locked into a physical outcome, it's easy to slip into the end justifies the means thinking. People have done horrible things based on that. We're talking about the means determining the end. So we connect with our vision of what we'd like to see happen. We connect with the feeling of it, and we let that navigate us ahead to however the physical outcome turns out to be. We can't, we're not in control of the universe. We don't know exactly what it will be. But it can guide us in terms of how we show up and how we behave. Well, we'd love to hear your stories of Stockdale paradoxes or assessments. Uh, Write us at thrivinginbusinessandlife at gmail.com. I'm Christopher Harding. And I'm Will Wilkinson. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll talk to you again next week. 